Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Fantastic. Why don't we pray using that verse, verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Lord, we come before you now as people who, we've got our source material, we've got the truth, we've got the word of God, and we want to set our seal to that. We want to receive whatever you're going to say to us now. We want to understand, we want to take it to heart, we want to grow, we want to learn, we want to have our eyes opened. So Lord, where there is any sin that might be blocking us from hearing you, from thinking about these things, we simply confess it, we give it to you, and we ask that you would clear our minds and that you would help us, Holy Spirit, now to understand what you are saying to us from heaven. Thank you that you want to speak, and Lord, we now declare that we want to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Andy. If I haven't met you, um, I work in this church. It's thrilling to have you here. Um, I want you to imagine that we perform a little social experiment together. We're going to lock all the doors. We will lock the windows. We will board everything up so no one can see in. We will uh, find a material, I don't know if this exists or not, where no one from the outside can see in or hear in or do any x-rays to find out what's going on inside. It's a total shutdown. No one on the outside can know what's going on here in the inside. And then we all watch Wimbledon together and we have lunch and there's enough food, don't worry. Um, you're fine. But let's imagine that happens. The roadworks make it more annoying because this is slightly less imaginable. But um, imagine then that crowds start to gather in order to find out what's going on, what has happened inside. And you can imagine at the beginning, like at the beginning of the lockdowns, the COVID lockdowns, everyone's relatively friendly. They're all uh, working together. They're all sharing ideas. How can we find out what's going on inside? But, as is always the case, and was the case with COVID lockdown, groups start to emerge, and tribes start to form, and different people with different opinions start to rise up to the top, and various different theories get thrown around about who is in here, what's going on, and how we can get in and find out that information. Then some people start to get a bit sort of heebie-jeebies start to claim that they're having visions of what's going on inside and other people come up with theories based on their own mathematics and these different leaders are rising up outside the church building forming these different crowds and communities claiming that they know what's going on in here. And so the discussions, and you can imagine it online, various forums opening up, and the discussions are, well, who is the greatest person to follow, and how are we going to get in? Those are the two questions that they're asking. Who should we follow? Who's the greatest? And how do we get in? Now, this is probably a million miles away from what was happening in Jesus' day, but let's say it wasn't a million miles away. And we find ourselves in this scenario in chapter 3. It says this, Now a discussion, or actually this word when it's used elsewhere in the New Testament, is a controversy or an argument. 
So now an argument arose between some of John's disciples and a few, and, and a, not a few, a Jew, over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. See, in their day, it wasn't a million miles away from my silly scenario. There were various different philosophers, you know this, Greek philosophers, Greek leaders, Roman leaders, Jewish rabbis, all of these had their tribes. The debate was, who is the greatest? Who is the greatest leader? Who is the greatest of all time? Who should we follow? Who should we be listening to? Who should direct us and guide us? And how do we get in? Now, this sounds a bit silly, but in the, uh, amongst the Jewish communities, the big questions were, who should we follow? Sorry, I'm shouting too much. Tech team. Who should we follow? And how do we get into the kingdom of heaven when it arrives? That was the question. So who is the greatest? Who is the greatest leader? And how do we get into the kingdom of heaven when it arrives? The kingdom of God. And there was a lot of discussion around the idea of purification. Because to be in God's presence, to be in his kingdom, one needs to be pure. One needs to be on the right side of God. And so all of this discussion was going on. Who is the greatest to follow? And how do I become pure? And there was this scenario where John the Baptist, if you remember a few weeks ago I spoke about this, you might not remember, um, John had gained a huge following because of his teaching and his baptism. His baptism offered a kind of new start for the Jews. For people who went to him, they flocked to him from miles around. And he was the greatest leader of the day. And then his upstart cousin called Jesus begins his ministry. And at this point, a whole crowd of people start moving away from John to Jesus. Now get yourself into the mindset of these stragglers who've remained with John. Imagine how they feel about the betrayers who've gone over to Jesus. Gone over to Jesus' side, following Jesus, this new leader who has a new baptism. Maybe this new baptism is better at purifying than John's baptism. It's likely that kind of discussion or debate was going on. And so these big questions, who should we follow? And how do we get in? How do we get into the kingdom of God? How can we absolutely make sure that we're on the right side of history when God turns up? Now, these questions are not a million miles away from modern day debates. Now, you've seen the slide, who is the goat? That is a worldwide debate, and sometimes it's just fun if it's with sporting people. So who is the greatest of all time in basketball or golf or uh, American football, soccer, whatever it is? This is an ongoing debate, and it will never be answered. And it's quite fun. But it's also a debate, if you think about it, who should we follow that actually changes and shapes this world. I was talking to someone at my Frisbee club, don't ask, um, what he was doing, and he works in PR. And he was saying, essentially, if you can find the right influencer, you can sell any product in any country nowadays. He had figured out last week, apparently, there was a brand new hangover pill on the market, brand new released, they sold something like 30,000 or 300,000 in a week because they'd found the right influencer. The greatest leaders 
the influencers shape the world. And it's not simply money-making, but it's also political, isn't it? As we know in our country at the moment. Worldwide, movements, philosophies, ideas. They own the day, and the discussion is, which one should I follow? Which group should I be in? And that's the other thing. How do I get in? How do I make sure that I'm the right side of history on this matter? How do I make sure that I'm not an outcast or seen as on the outside of this debate? I don't want to become a scapegoat in my workplace. I don't want to be seen as the person who's not fitting in, who's not wearing the right badges, who's not uh, giving to the right causes, who's not wearing the right clothes, who's not eating the right foods. All of that is the purity debate. There's no change. Back in the day, it seemed more religious. It was about purification, washing yourself. Now it's about washing yourself, but with the right things. The debates are still there. Who is the greatest, and how do we get in? How do we make sure that we are pure? And John's disciples want John to join in with the debate. How will John vote in this debate? They say to him, look, he is Jesus, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Dot, dot, dot. There's an implied question here. John, how are you going to respond? Jesus is baptizing. How are you going to respond? What are you going to do about it? Where do you cast your vote? And do you notice how, Jesus resp uh, how John responds? He doesn't answer their question. He doesn't get dragged into the debate. And yet he takes a step back and changes the conversation. And I think Jesus, he probably learned this from his cousin Jesus, probably when they were uh, having conversations in the playground or whatever, and everyone, all the kids were trying to drag Jesus into the debate, who's the best? I imagine Jesus would step back and change the conversation. We know that he did it in his ministry. And John does that here. He takes a step back and addresses broader principles. He changes the conversation. And I think this is quite helpful in our day and age where debates are everywhere. And it's black and white nearly always. You have to take a side. You have to say this or that. You have to put your stake in the ground. I think a lesson from this is feel free to take a step back, change the conversation. But that's not the main point. The main point is how John responds. He doesn't say, well, Jesus is clearly the greatest of all time. He's better than me. He's a better version uh, of me, so you should follow him. Or his baptism is better than mine, so go and follow him. He doesn't do that. Instead, think about the words that John uses in his response about himself and about Jesus. We've got a table if we can have the next slide. Because I was trying to figure out, why is this passage in John's Gospel? We've just had the amazing wedding at Cana, where Jesus does all the stuff with the wine. And then we've got the great story of Nicodemus that Howard spoke on. And then we've got John 3.16, the highlight of the whole Bible. And then we've got this quite boring story at the end of John chapter 3. And then we move into the woman at Samaria. And you think... Because at the end of John's Gospel, John says, I've got so many more stories about Jesus that I'm not writing down and telling you. And I'm half thinking, well, it would be lovely if we could just cut this one out and put one of the cool stories in, if that's all right. I was trying to figure out why is this story in here. And I think it's because John 
is writing to an audience who keep putting Jesus in the wrong category. And not just his immediate audience, but also future audiences, especially in our day. Let's not put Jesus in the wrong category. Let's have a look at the categories, how John refers to himself. He is a witness. Jesus is the Christ. Now, look at that tea and coffee table over there. Some of you passed the test. Now, six-month-old children and dogs tend to look at the pointing finger. Adults tend to look at the object. Because that's the point of pointing. You point at something, not in order for people to look at you, which some of you continue to do, but to look at the object that I'm pointing at. Two different categories. I'm the pointer. That is the thing being pointed at. That should get full attention. That should get your full... Not anymore. That should get your full attention. <laughs> Stop looking at the tear dropping. Two different categories of things. A pointer and the thing being pointed at. That is what John is describing himself. He was the witness, the big dog of the witnessing crowd, but he was only a witness. He was pointing to this man, Jesus, who was the Christ. There were many witnesses. There was only one Christ. Big difference in category. It's a categorical difference. John versus Jesus. Then, the friend of the bridegroom and the bridegroom. Now, I don't know. There's a few weddings coming up. Uh, there might be someone in here who's planning their best man speech. And you're very proud that you're the best man at the wedding. But can I break it to you? The wedding will not fall apart if you don't turn up. If you get COVID and can't be there, people might be a little bit upset, but it will carry on without you. If the groom doesn't turn up, different story. John is in a different category to Jesus. He's the friend of the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. The best man makes the day better. The day revolves around the bridegroom. Different category. Jesus is not being dragged into this. John is not dragging Jesus into the debate about, hey, who's the greatest leader of our day? Whose version of purification should we choose? John changes the conversation. You've heard that phrase. It's like comparing apples to oranges when um, you, you're sort of talking about two quite different things. Who's better, uh, Ronaldo or LeBron James? LeBron James, basketball player, Ronaldo, football player. It's like comparing apples and oranges. That's not what this is like. I know it's a stupid analogy because I couldn't think of anything else, but that isn't what this is like. That's saying these things are quite different, but they're still fruit. This debate is like comparing apples with farmers. Do you see? Quite different categories. The apples rely on the farmers for everything. You don't say which one's better, an apple or a farmer. That's just a silly debate. John is not dragging Jesus into the debate. And I think it's because of this profound truth in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Throughout John's gospel, 
there is this emphasis. Look out for it, listen out for it as we carry on our series together. If you have a copy of the Bible, just get a pen and draw an up arrow and a down arrow wherever you notice distinction between coming from above, coming from below. You will find it's everywhere. John is at pains to emphasize where Jesus comes from. He comes from above. Where does everyone in this room come from? We come from below. We come from the earth. Now, the Gospels are also full of accounts of making sure that people believe and understand that Jesus was 100% and still is 100% fully human. But his origin, the origin of the Son of Man, uh, Son of God, Son of Man, is very important. He comes from above. No other person can claim that. No other religious leader, no one can claim that. Jesus comes from above. Why is it important? Well, firstly, his opinion is correct. When it comes to matters about heaven and about God, which is then everything, Jesus' opinion is correct. Go back to my silly scenario where we've shut down the whole building. And after a few months of having fun together, we decide to send someone out. Sharon, you can go. You will go outside to the crowds and you will discover what's going on. You will listen to the different stories. And up there on the funny little patch of grass is a group where they've got a statue with a human body and a goat head. And you say, what's going on here? They say, didn't you hear? Spiritualist Joe had a dream and he was inside the building and he saw that there was this grey mist and everyone had sprouted goat heads. And we are now worshipping the statue of the goat head, goat headed man. And then you go down, slightly down the mall, and there's a group with their black flags and no shrine. You say, what, what are you here for? What are you campaigning about? We're saying that there's no one inside that building at all. There's nothing. Nothing exists in there. You're thinking, well, it's a bit weird that you've camped outside the building where there's nothing happening, but carry on. And then you move on, and there's other people having their different theories and saying different things about what's going on in here. Now, sorry to be rude, but you might not be the smartest one when you go out there. Intelligence-wise, IQ-wise, in the crowds outside, there might be geniuses who've gone into one group or another. But on this matter, your opinion is correct and theirs is not. Because you have first-hand experience of what's actually going on. You can just laugh at some of the ideas because they're ridiculous. And then you can suggest, I don't know if they would listen to you, and that's also part of this story that I won't get to, but your opinion is correct because you have insight. You are from the inside. You have first-hand first experience. Now, can you imagine how Jesus felt growing up in a world where there were so many Roman gods? When... In school, they were being taught that there were options and various different weird forms and creatures are up there in the heavenly realms. And Jesus is thinking, I don't remember seeing any of that. And then you've got the various different philosophers saying, there's nothing there at all. And you're like, well, there definitely is. I was there. You've got all of this going on. Jesus is in the middle of it. And then amongst the Jews even, they're saying, well, the God up there he doesn't want anyone to be healed on the Sabbath. That would be a bad thing. And Jesus is like, I know my father. 
He definitely would love that kind of thing happening. And then you've got the group in the temple saying, we, we think that God is really pleased that we've set up various different market stalls and we're selling stuff in this area where the Gentiles should have been, but that was never part of God's plan. And Jesus kicked over the tables because, of course, he knows from first-hand experience that is what God wants. He wants the Gentiles to come in. He wants people from all nations. You see what I'm getting at? It must have been a very unusual experience for Jesus to see all these theories about what's going on up in heaven when he has first-hand experience because he is from above. So his opinion is correct, but not only that, his opinion matters. Imagine this. Imagine two goats arguing about a patch of grass. Goat A says, well, I got here first. And goat B says, yeah, but I was promised this patch of grass many years, uh, many years ago. And then goat C turns up, who's much bigger, much stronger, and much smarter, and says, well, I don't care, this is my patch of grass. Now, whose opinion matters between the three goats? It's up for debate. They're all goats. Who changes the debate? Well, it's when the shepherd turns up. When the shepherd turns up, the debate finishes because there is no question whose opinion matters most. It's whoever the shepherd chooses. The shepherd's in charge. John is not being dragged into this debate about who is the goat, who is the greatest of all time. Is Jesus perhaps the greatest goat? And John is saying, no, he's not a goat. Jesus is not the greatest of all time. He created time. Jesus is not the greatest person in this world. He was the one that the world was created for. He is above all. And it's his opinion that matters at the end, just like the shepherd. It says in uh, chapter 3, verse 35 and 36, the father... God the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands, Jesus. He has been given full authority over everything and everyone. So in the end, it's his opinion that matters most about everything and everyone, including you and me. On the final day, no matter what you thought of yourself throughout your life, whether you thought too highly of yourself or too lowly of yourself, whether other, opinions ha uh, other people had various opinions of you and those affected you. In the end, all of the debates mean nothing in comparison to what Jesus thinks of you, his opinion of you. And you might think, well, I'm being very hypothetical now and we're just in guesswork land. We don't know what Jesus would think of me. I don't know what's going to happen to me when I die. Well, you can know, because he came from heaven to tell us. It says here, whoever believes in the Son now has eternal life, has a place in his kingdom, is fully an insider, guaranteed, no questions asked. So whoever believes in the Son now has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Now just read that last line and the line that's up there very carefully because I grew up as an atheist 
having understood about Christianity, that the message of Christianity is this. We all are born, we, we're all born atheists, we all grow up, we have different ideas about life, and then at the very end, the Christian claim is that you get cursed by God because you didn't believe in Jesus. That was the idea of Christianity that I grew up with. That we all live our lives, and then at the very end, this very vindictive God just curses you because you didn't believe in Jesus. What does this say? This says that we are already cursed. Every single one of us is under the wrath of God already. Everyone is born in this state. The whole world is. It started at the beginning, ever since humanity wholesale rejected God, decided to do it our own way, we all became outsiders. This is where there's a big difference between my silly scenario and reality. Is in this scenario, there's a bunch of insiders and then some outsiders. In reality, there is one insider and then the whole world are outsiders. Because we chose to be. Jesus in the heavenly realm, every human being born on this earth under a curse. Now, the physical signs in the world of that curse are thorns and diseases and pain and strife and death. These things are signs that the whole world and everyone in the world and from the world are under the curse. What are the signs that that curse is also in you and the wrath of God remains on you? Well, it's that those thorns grow out of you as well. We heard about last week, your pride. The bitterness that you feel. That unresolved and un unfair anger that you might have against someone. The strife or the envy that you feel in the workplace or at school or university, whatever it might be. These things, these evil thoughts and deeds that you commit against people. You almost don't know where they come from, but they are thorns that stick out of you. Every single one of us has a crown of thorns on our head from birth. It's a sign of the curse. Sprouts thorns because of our sin. See, the message of the Bible isn't that God is going to curse you because you didn't believe in Jesus. The message of the Bible is that you are cursed and there is a penalty for that. And Jesus is the only one who wants to and can take that curse away from you. Why did he wear a crown of thorns on the cross? Seems like a random bit of decoration. Well, there's symbolism in that. The curse of the world and the curse upon every human being was taken off them and put onto him willingly. He wants to take that off you and onto himself. And I, I've experienced this where as, the, as an atheist. I thought that we all just worked by perfect reason. So if someone comes to us, to a human being who's relatively well-educated and explains things thoroughly and sufficiently, we will understand it and believe it if it is right. And then I went on something called Alpha where I was learning about Christianity and I discovered something different inside of me. I don't know, have you ever had an app on your phone or something on the computer like a file that whenever you open it, the entire thing crashes? 
and you have to do a full reset. It's really annoying. And you're constant, and, and I just, <laughs> I'm of the stupid mindset that I'll just try it five times because it'll work again. Every time I try and open that one, everything else works fine, but that one file, I try and open that, the entire system crashes. I discovered that in myself. Normally, in day-to-day -day life, I'm reasonably rational. Some of you might disagree, but relatively thought through about stuff. As soon as Jesus' name and these truths got raised, the system crashed. I got angry. I got defensive. I didn't want to hear it. Where was that coming from? And I think the imagery that I imagine if you all actually were currently wearing crowns of thorns dug into your head right now, sorry, and you have to try and listen to me. Now, it might be a welcome relief, but um, you would find it very hard to follow what I'm saying because of everything digging in, distracting you, constantly taking your mind off what's going on. Maybe a little drop of blood would go over your eyes and you're struggling to see properly. Trying to think straight, trying to understand the truths about God in this universe while there is a crown of thorns dug into your skull is impossible. You cannot think straight. You can't concentrate. You can't remain thinking about the right stuff for the right amount of time. You want to distract yourself. I found as an atheist looking into Christianity, I was becoming convinced of the resurrection and the facts about that and everything else, but I just couldn't see until there was a moment, and it was nothing to do with me, but there was a, just a moment where essentially I confessed my sin. Where I just took the crown off and gave it to Jesus. And he willingly wore it on his head on the cross. In that moment, things made more sense. I discovered that actually there was a weight off me. And I could see clearer. I could understand the realities of God now. Because I'm not simply that rational human being that I thought I was. I'm also affected by this thing called sin. And the only way that you can truly understand and know God is by giving Jesus your crown of thorns. Letting him deal with it. And then finally, I just want to address the elephant in the room. And it's not that I've gone on too long, which is also the case. But in this story... There's a character that's mentioned, or mentioned, but not really talked about. Because John calls himself the friend of the bridegroom, and then he calls Jesus the bridegroom. Now, what should the followers of John therefore ask? John is saying, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. That guy over there is the bridegroom. What should John's disciples be asking? Who is the bride? Because if the, bride, uh, if the friend of the bridegroom rejoices so much at the voice of the bridegroom, I'm getting really confused by the words, the best man, if the best man is so pleased to hear the groom speaking, how much more happy will the bride be? How much more full of joy and celebration should the bride be? How much more should John's disciples hear that and go, Crikey, you're cheerful. I want to be the bride. Because here's the remarkable thing. In another gospel, Jesus says that John the Baptist was the greatest human being to have ever been born. But then Jesus says, but even the least of you in my kingdom 
is greater than John. Who's the greatest of all time? Anyone that believes in Jesus. You're greater than John the Baptist. Not because of your achievements, but because of how and who you know. You know Jesus. John sadly died before he heard the rest of Jesus' teaching, before he saw Jesus die on a cross, before Jesus was resurrected, before Jesus went up to heaven, before Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit into his people, into his bride. Before the bride experienced the love of God like no one had ever experienced before. But John's disciples had that possibility to experience that. That was what he was trying to get them to do. That is why this passage is written, I think, and that is why God wants us to hear it today. So that we can experience more joy than even John the Baptist. That we can know God even better than John the Baptist did. Because we are his bride. We are the one that he took the crown off her head, put it onto his, and then gave her the crown of life. That's us. So if the band can come up and we'll just respond. This next, oh sorry, not quite half now, maybe, um, is just for us to respond. Howard's going to lead us in it. But let's pray. Let's stand and pray. Father, thank you for the truth that Jesus spoke. He's not the greatest teacher of all time. He is the Word of God. Thank you that he is the Christ, the anointed one, the man of the Spirit, the one who comes to save and is victorious in salvation. Thank you that he is the insider that came to the outside in order to bring outsiders in. And we are those outsiders. Thank you that we are the bride simply by believing. Thank you that we can know Jesus' opinion of us now. Thank you for drawing us to yourself right now. And I pray for anyone who's on the edge trying to figure this out, trying to understand it. Lord, let them hand over their sin to you. Thank you that you are willing to take it at the cross. Now, Lord, I pray that we would no longer be willing to try and hold on to it for ourselves, but to give it to you, that we might experience even more joy than John the Baptist did when he heard the voice of Jesus, because we've just heard the voice of our bridegroom speaking, Lord. So thank you. Holy Spirit, please move amongst us now. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.